we'll try it again. We better now. <laughs> uh, say with me, relentless. One more time, relentless. Did you know that the Holy Spirit of Almighty God is relentless in pursuing you? Did you know that the Holy Spirit of Almighty God is relentless in pursuing you? We are in our second week in our series called Relentless on the book of Acts. And today I have the privilege of sharing with you from Acts chapter 22. Uh, Miss Debbie is going to toss all this up on the screen. But if you'd like to follow along with me, again, Acts 22, the Apostle Paul is writing and he says, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison. And as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify, I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all the things that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. And a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law, highly respected by all the Jews living there. And he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. And you will be his witness to all of the people of what you have seen and what you have heard. And he said, now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would empty me of myself, that you would give me the words that you would have me to speak, not for my benefit or for my glory, but for yours. God, what a beautiful, sweet presence of the Holy Spirit that has already been felt in this place this morning. Lord, I pray that you would undergird us with strength and with truth, that you would be with the listener, that they would hear from you, that they would be encouraged, and that they would be equipped to continue to fulfill the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do all these things we ask and pray, Lord. In the name of Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. There's a couple of moments in life that are simply unforgettable, things that you remember where you were, 
You can remember the smell of the room where you were at. You can remember the taste of certain foods that you enjoyed. But I often remember elders in my life that would speak to me and say, I remember where I was at when. Are you familiar with some of these unforgettable moments? Miss Debbie's going to help me put a couple of these up on the screen. I want you to just think about a couple of these with me. How about the attack on Pearl Harbor? My grandfather was a young man when this happened, and I remember vividly him telling me the fear that surrounded the country as they wondered what the days and the weeks and the months would unfold. How about the assassination of John F. Kennedy? The attempt or the resignation of Richard Nixon after the Watergate scandal. The attempted assassination of President Reagan. The explosion of the space shuttle Challenger. How many of you vividly remember where you were the morning of the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks? I remember the first time I laid eyes on this beautiful lady at Johns River Valley Camp 22 years ago this past week. I remember our youth as bridesmaids and groomsmen at the church at Westford and Concord the day that Jennifer and I got married. How many of you vividly remember the days that your children were born? This is Bryson and Jackson. Bryson on the left and Jackson on the right. I had a little bit more hair and a lot more brown back then, amen? And then lastly, I remember vividly about 21 months ago being prayed in here as the new youth pastors at First Assembly. I want to ask you, what are some unforgettable moments in your life that stand out to you? Today in this message, Paul is defending his calling to serve this Jesus. He is describing the greatest unforgettable moment that significantly changed his life forever. Let me ask you this. Do you know what the gospel message of Jesus Christ is? If someone at the Aldi or someone at the Burger King could ask you in just a few brief words to explain and share the gospel message of Jesus, I think one of the easiest ways to describe that is this. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is the realization that the Apostle Paul entered the gates of heaven to cheers of joy from the same people he previously murdered for the cause of Christ. I'm going to say that again. Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those that he martyred. That is the gospel message in a nutshell. What you and I see as unjustness or injustice and unfairness, Jesus sees as grace. Paul is defending his call to serve the Lord in this way. I want to ask you this morning, if you still have breath, you are called to serve Almighty God. Your life has purpose and meaning. What has God gifted you with to make a difference in this world? How can you reach others for the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ? Every one of you, regardless of age or financial security or status or standing in the public square, has a call on your life 
as a believer. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You are called and you are equipped and gifted to fulfill that calling. Amen? Amen? There's a story about a little girl who proudly wore a shiny cross on a chain around her neck, and one day her preacher, well-meaning, noticed how proud she seemed to be of her pretty cross, and he came up to her and kind of rudely said, Honey, don't you know that the cross that Jesus died on wasn't beautiful like the one you're wearing? It was an ugly, terrible, wooden, blood-stained thing. And the little girl smiled and she said, oh, preacher, I know that. But they told me in Sunday school that whatever Jesus touches, he changes. I want to tell you right now, if you didn't hear me, whatever Jesus touches, Jesus changes. And that's what this story that I just read to you is all about. Jesus touched Paul and the apostle Paul was never the same again. Have you been touched to the point of Jesus that you are not the same again. I want to introduce you to this man named Saul. Many of you are familiar with his story. Those of you that know the Bible well know that Saul was Paul's name up until he became a believer in Christ. And after his conversion, he eventually became known exclusively by the name of Paul. But Saul of Tarsus was born a Jew on the southern coast of what we now call Turkey. And somewhere early in his life, his family moved from ancient Turkey to Jerusalem. And while he was there, Saul had the opportunity to study in a rabbinic school under a man named Gamaliel, one of the greatest Jewish rabbis of the day. And Saul was a man who took his faith very seriously. He later described himself this way. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, he says, I was faultless. One day he might have grown up to be a Jewish rabbi, perhaps even greater than Gamaliel himself, if Jesus had not stepped into his life. Saul hung out with the Pharisees, and these Pharisees despised Jesus. One of the things that my New Testament professor in seminary would always mention is that Jesus would literally be in a field somewhere. He would be walking by a fig tree. He would just be out and about in the community, and all of a sudden, these Pharisees would just show up on the scene. It was almost like they were ninjas, like they came up out of nowhere all the time. They were always following Jesus. And this distaste that the Pharisees had for Jesus was something that Paul would have shared with the Pharisees. So when Jesus was arrested, it's entirely plausible that he was in the crowd as they shouted, crucify him. And after a short time, Jesus is dead. And this Saul is thinking, good riddance to bad rubbish. But then there began to be these rumors that he had risen from the dead and had appeared to his followers. Peter and John, these ignorant, unlearned fishermen from Galilee, they'd been out preaching to the crowds about this Jesus to the people. They even had the audacity to stand before the Sanhedrin 
and defiantly refuse to cease their false teaching. And this Saul is furious. How dare these ignorant men challenge the leaders of the law, the leaders of God's people. And that would have been bad enough, but then there was this fool of a man, a young man named Stephen, who stood before the crowd and lectured them about their history as the people of God. And Stephen said that God didn't need even a temple to worship in, and he concluded by calling them stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. He said, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. He questions them, was there ever a prophet <coughs> that your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. When Saul and the other men in the crowd heard that, they were furious and the Bible says they gnashed their teeth at him. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anybody gnash their teeth at you. Maybe some of your teenagers, if you told them no or took their phone. Either you ever gnashed your teeth at mom and dad? Didn't mean to put you on the spot. It's all right. I don't have any idea how you would gnash your teeth at somebody, but these people were enraged. They were angry. <clears throat> but finally, it was when Stephen said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is getting a standing ovation by Jesus in heaven. And when Stephen says this, it pushes these men over the edge. With that, the Bible says they threw Stephen out. They began to stone him outside of the city. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, why would these men stone Stephen to death in this story? Because they believed he was introducing a new God. In the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy in chapter 13, the word says, if your brother, the son, or your mother, your son or daughter, the wife that you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly by saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. He says, you shall not spare them, nor will you conceal them, but you will kill them. So Stephen, they believe, is introducing a new God. And based on the Pharisaic law, it was their duty to kill him, to stone him. The crowd believed that Stephen was introducing a new God so they did what they believed they were told to do in Scripture. But was Stephen introducing a new God? No, the Jewish Messiah had come that had long been prophesied before. Jesus is the one who had been prophesied to bring about the new covenant. And he established his authority by doing that. He was the God that was talked about all the way through the Old Testament. But Saul and the other men did not buy into that. Jesus, for them, was a heretic, and that's why they put him to death. And when Stephen preached about Jesus, he became a heretic, and he had to die as well. Now, this was a focal point in the turning point in Saul's life. From this point on, Saul knew that his mission had to be to eradicate and then to exterminate 
these people before this heresy got out of control. And that is precisely what Saul did, and he was good at it. He was a man who was passionate about his faith. Have you ever seen someone who was extremely passionate about their faith? Have you ever seen someone who was passionate about something they believed in, a sports team, or maybe someone that got very excited and passionate during the election cycle? Sometimes when we're passionate about the wrong things, we can become irrational. And Paul saw this new faith as being an attack on the God that he faithfully served, and he was not just going to look the other way while these Christians, these unlearned, ignorant people, undermined the faith of his fathers that had brought him to the place in life where he was at. Now, what I find interesting about this story up until this point is that Jesus had not done this before. What I mean by that is this. Saul had been persecuting Christians for some time now. Why would Jesus wait until this specific moment in Saul's life to drop in and to stop him in his tracks? And I think the answer to that question is found in Saul's defense in retelling this incident here in chapter 22. The word says, And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persing? persecuting me he says it was a hard is it is hard for you to kick against the goads now I got to looking at that and studying that over the last week or so and I'm like what is he talking about a kick against the goads what is that about in the old testament an ox goad was a stick that had a pointed piece of iron on its tip almost like a small spear and farmers would use this goad to prod the axe to the ox to change direction when they were plowing. Basically, the goad steered the ox in the right direction when the ox wanted to fight and go in the wrong direction. Now, what possible goads could Jesus have been talking about? One of those was what Jesus promised in the book of John. Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged already. In other words, part of the Spirit's job is to confront us, to confront us in our face, to convict us of our sins and our need for righteousness and the fact that there is a judgment coming. So how could God's Spirit soften Saul up? One way that comes to mind is that as Saul talked with those Christians who were facing imprisonment or even death as their persecution, God made him realize that their faith was real. And this observation of their faith, I suspect, shook Paul. Because even at the point of death, they did not back down. An early leader in the church named Jerome from Africa says the church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. The church of Jesus Christ has endured for 2,000 years because the people 
even while they were being persecuted, would not give up their faith in the face of the persecution. In other words, in the days of the early church, people were won to Jesus Christ by the witness of Christians that were authentically being persecuted, not by them that were whining because of the persecution. It was how these believers responded to mistreatment and abuse that shook people and also converted them to Christ. So the Holy Spirit softens Paul up. And then Jesus comes for a visit. And when Jesus came for a visit, Saul had to go to his knees. Because when Jesus touched Saul, Jesus changed him. From that day, Ananias baptized Saul for the forgiveness of his sins. Saul became a man on fire for Jesus Christ, like of which the world has not seen. You could not shut him up. He was driven. He was changed. Eventually, even his name is changed from Saul to Paul. And ultimately, we know that Paul wrote half of the New Testament. One of the things that I love about God is that he uses the most unlikely characters and the most unlikely sources. The man who sought to destroy Christianity became its most powerful voice. The question that I want to ask you this morning is, why did Paul change? Well, the simplest answer is this. Jesus went looking for him. And Paul had the kind of passion that Jesus was looking for. Now, granted, earlier his passion was misplaced. But he was honest in what he did. The thing is, Paul ultimately had to make a choice. And it's a choice that each of us has to make. Because even when being confronted with Jesus, Paul could have said, no, that's not how I was raised. He was not raised and taught to be a follower of Jesus. He could have said no. It wouldn't have been very smart, but he could have. It's only when we start listening to Christ that our lives begin to change. It's only when we answer our calling authentically to live in to the Holy Spirit's nudging that we see the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because whatever Jesus touches... He changes. Now, I've shared parts of my call story with you before, how we've gotten from where we are to where we've been. But I haven't shared all of it before. Since my early teenage years, I had felt a call to the ministry and to the call of God's people. I grew up in a congregation of the United Church of Christ in downtown Concord. It was slightly different than the Methodist church that I served for 17 years and a lot different from here at AFA where we're served now. Every year as a child, our youth group, as small as it was, we had around seven people, would lead our worship service on Youth Sunday. Normally this was a time to just get up and tell about the different aspects and all the different things that we had been involved in. But when I was 15, I had shown some promise and was asked to preach a full sermon. This was an overwhelming excitement on my part, as well as some of the other folks in the church. And I've preached a very crude sermon on how Abraham's ultimate faith and trust in the Lord when dealing with Isaac, when the Lord asked him to sacrifice him, was so much different than Peter's apparent lack of faith while walking on the water to receive Jesus. Now, I had received 
a lot of flattering compliments and was even asked to preach again a few months later when the pastor was on vacation. And because of this affirmation at a young age of what I perceived as God's gifts in my life, I became enrolled in something called the in-care status in the UCC. What that is is like the pre-ordination route, even as a teenager. After graduating high school, I went off to Western Carolina, and while doing so, I worked as a summer camp counselor at Black Lake Retreat Center in Asheboro and Johns River Valley Camp up in Collettesville, up near Boone, where Jennifer and I met. And while I was away at camp, our church became involved in a lot of heated, angry discussion among other churches of our denomination about many of the gay and lesbian issues that many churches are still facing today, including my friends in the Methodist Church. Many of the people that I looked up to the most growing up left our church out of anger. When I was a senior in high school, we averaged around 110, 120 people on Sunday morning. The following Easter, when I came home after all of this anger and this bitterness and things had set in, we had around 40. There was a discussion between several prominent members of our church to leave the denomination and to follow several other local churches to form a new denomination, and that's what they did. And I went to several of these meetings where different pastors were yelling at each other to the point I was at a meeting in Lexington where one pastor said to the other, if you don't like it, I'll see you outside. That took a toll on 19-year-old me. This went on for more than a year, and the longer it did, the more depressed I became. And honestly, I got disillusioned with church and quit going for quite a while. I felt like I had not found my niche of where I belonged. And I was tired of going to church to hear folks argue. Have you ever felt that way before? I simply wanted to worship. All your promises are yes and amen. But looking back on that season in life, the main problem I had was my own immaturity. I wasn't comfortable enough with my own relationship with God. I felt a call on my life, but I didn't know what that looked like. And quite honestly, at the time, I didn't believe that God could use me. Growing up, I knew the Bible stories backwards and forwards. I could quote verse after verse. I had the religion part down, but not the relationship. I was starved spiritually. During my last couple of years of high school, we had had an interim pastor at my home church before a lot of this fallout happened. He was a wonderful man of God who was faithful to the word. And while I was in college at Western, he called me up one evening out of the blue. And he did not know at the time that I had quit going to church. But he called me up and he said, Bo, I had sensed a calling in your life. And he said, I, I just wanted to know what you were doing with it. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks because at the time, I wasn't doing anything with it. I want to ask you, have you noticed a calling in someone else's life? Has someone noticed a call in your own life? I want to encourage you this morning to be an encouragement to someone else because you might be the only encouragement and inspiration they hear. Don't be afraid to tell them. At the time, Reverend Cheek had no idea what was going on in my life. I had gone off the rails. I've been drinking heavily and not for fun. 
that joined the fraternity and was proud to hold the keg stand records for Sigma Chi. I don't know if I should share this with you, so please don't email Nate. Email me, blinker at albemarlefirst.org. But I believe in being transparent. There was a bulletin board outside the hallway, outside of my room on the eighth floor at Scott Hall. And on this bulletin board had different names of young men. And next to their names were dashes, one, two, three, four, slash, one. One, two, three, one, two, three, four. There was a competition between the young men on our hallway of how many young ladies they had been with during the semester. It was a game. I'm not trying to be graphic to you this morning, but I am trying to share with you the reality of the situation and how far I had drifted from the way I'd been raised. It came to a head one night after I came home from a party and I'd had too much to drink and was crying and was unconsolable. And I pulled my Bible off my shelf and I flipped through the pages and I came to Psalm 116. Debbie, will you pull that up for me? I'm going to read this, and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to just hear these words. I believe King David is writing, and he says, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me, and the anguish of the grave came upon me, and I was overcome by distress and sorrow. But then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary, and when I was brought low, he saved me. David says, return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my feet from death my eyes from tears and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I trusted in the Lord when I said, I am greatly afflicted. And in my dismay, I said, everyone is a liar. What shall I return to the Lord for all of his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and will call on the name of the Lord. And I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. For truly, Lord, I am your servant. I serve you just as my mama did. For you, O oh Lord, have freed me from my chains. Friends, I don't know if you've ever had a chain-breaking moment in your life. But I distinctly remember that night Jesus freeing me from mine. And it may not have been a Damascus Road experience like Paul, but it certainly was an unforgettable moment that I will always remember and keep with me. Now you might think, and this is something that I found with new Christians, when they get saved, when they commit their life to Christ, many of them think, well, Bo, it's just going to be smooth sailing right now. It's not. When you give your life to Christ, you perk the enemy's ears up. And he'll throw everything but the kitchen sink at you. And sometimes even that. 
Shortly after that moment, I transferred home and I was hired as the assistant director of childcare at the West Cabarrus YMCA in Concord. And I assisted with summer, uh, summer camp and after school. One thing has always been evident to me, kids are my passion. Being a positive role model is what drives me. Several months into that position at West Cabarrus, I had been promoted to the director of uh, the position of director at the Cannon YMCA in Kannapolis. And I thought at age 22, I had found what I would wanted as my dream job. I was able to have an impact on the lives of kids, many of which did not attend church. I looked at my job as an extension of ministry. During this time, I had had a stirring in my soul, a calling to do more with my faith, but didn't know what that looked like. My wife, who was my fiance at the time, we had found a church home and a pastor to help me understand what the Lord was calling me to do. At that church, I was helping with Sunday school, Bible study, VBS. We'd even started a small youth group program. And I had became very close to my pastor friend at the time, and he had given me several opportunities to preach. And the administrative council at the church liked those sermons to the point to where they asked me to be the supply pastor when the pastor was gone. Things were going so smoothly. I felt a calling to pursue the ministry, but I did not want to give up the security that I thought I had had at the YMCA. Until one day. Have you ever had one of those days? I was playing football on the field with some of the kids before time to go home, and I threw the ball to one of our more accident-prone boys. It kind of reminds me of Jackson, to be honest with you. But I threw the ball to this boy named Kayshawn, and it bounced off his finger, and he came up to me, and he said that his finger hurt. And, and this young man was literally hurt every day. He came up to me and showed me his hand, and I looked at it. It wasn't swollen. There was nothing wrong. And I said, Kay, can you keep playing? And he said, yeah, I think so. Well, I was called away to answer a phone call in the lobby, and I wasn't there when his mother came to pick him up that afternoon. And not being there when she came to pick him up, I didn't think anything of it. The next day, his mother came in with him, and his entire hand was in a rudimentary cast that they had put on him. She claimed that his entire hand was broken, and she threatened to sue the YMCA in Kannapolis for negligence on my part. Come to find out a couple of months later, she had pulled this same prank at Kids Plus Daycare, Kids Our Kids Daycare, and Peter Pan Daycare, all in Cabarrus County. She was trying to get free childcare. At any rate, I was fired, and I was crushed. I thought, God, I'm trying to be faithful to you. I'm trying to do what you've called me to do. After all the church issues that we'd had in October of 2005, my parents were preparing to join Westford Methodist in Concord. They had been visiting for quite a while and fell in love with the people, the choir, the pastor, the worship. It felt like home, and in many ways still does. The pastor was out visiting them on a Saturday after I had been fired on a Friday. At the time, Westford was looking for a youth pastor and Jeff, the pastor there, asked my parents if I might be interested in the position, and they told me, told him what had just happened. 
And he said, have him give me a call. That particular Saturday, I had gone up to Western for the homecoming football game just to get out of town and get away from the pain and the distraction that I had felt. A week later, I interviewed for the position at Westford, and life has not been the same since then. What I'm trying to tell you is that on one of the worst days of my life, very next week was one of the best days. God was doing something at the time that I did not realize. But they were puzzle pieces that had fallen into place. Over the time that we served at Westford for nine years, I got to fully realize what my call was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it took another leap of faith to leave there and embark on the journey of becoming a senior pastor in the Methodist church. And then feeling the call after eight years there to leave and to come and to join to be here with you all. And I will be honest with you this morning. The Lord has blessed my family greatly here at First Assembly and we absolutely love it. And you all have our gratitude. I tell you all that to say I'm ashamed to say that I ran from my calling for a long time because I thought for many years that there is no way that God can use someone as imperfect as me to build his kingdom. And then when I read scripture and I see the lives of Paul and Peter and James and John, I realize that God always uses imperfect people like me. God has always used imperfect people to do his will. If you think today that you are not good enough to be used by God, that you're too young or you're too old or you have some sort of ailment or frailty, I promise you that you are wrong. My point is that God can use you to do some miraculous things. For our young people, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young but set the example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. Whether or not you feel called to serve in full-time ministry or not, we are all called to do something. This morning, I'm going to invite Philip and the band back to the stage, and I want to share this story with you. People have always been interested in entertainment, and in 1859 in Niagara Falls up near Buffalo, 25,000 people gathered to watch this daredevil named Charles Blondin. He preceded Evil Knievel. But they came to watch this daredevil tightrope across Niagara Falls. He always worked without a net, believing that preparing for disaster only made one more likely to occur. So a rope that was 1,300 feet long, two inches in diameter, and made entirely of hemp was the sole thing separating him from the rolling waters beneath. He announced subsequent crossings, promising that each other crossing would be more and more daring and dangerous than the last. On July 15, 1859, with President Millard Fillmore in attendance, Blondin walked backwards to Canada and returned to the U.S., pushing a wheelbarrow across the rope. The people cheered wildly as he crossed. The second time he went across with the wheelbarrow, he asked if anyone thought, can I make it back safely again? And everyone cheered and they screamed, Charles, we've got faith in you. 
He then asked something that brought their tears to a stop. Anybody want to guess what it is? He asked if anybody wanted to volunteer and go for a ride in the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. Not surprisingly, no one raised their hands. Nobody raised their hands. This morning, following and trusting God in our lives can almost be as scary as riding a wheelbarrow on a tightrope over Niagara Falls. It is easy to cheer the pastor on. It is easy to cheer the staff and others that are involved on. But when we're asked to participate, it can get really scary really fast. This morning, I want you to remember that God has called you and that this same Apostle Paul that we've talked about all day says in 1 Thessalonians 5, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He also says in Philippians 1, in all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. He has called you, and the one that has called you is faithful. Lastly, I'll share with you, I want you to remember that no amount of guilt can solve the past. And no amount of anxiety can change the future. You are called. Let go and let God. Amen.